Welcome to Walking It Out, living the Bible in everyday real life. Hey there, I'm Pastor Brad. I hope that you're having an awesome start to your week. I hope that you're having an awesome morning. You know, on Sunday mornings at my church, we have been walking through over the last several months this letter of Ephesians, this book of Ephesians, this letter that Paul wrote to the churches in the area of Ephesus. And there's so many things to love about this book. One, because it is intensely convicting, but also intensely practical. But let me tell you an interesting thing that I love about this book is that it is incredibly organized. That's what I love about Paul. Paul writes this letter and he kind of very interestingly and succinctly and very in an organized way uh, divides the book into two halves. I mean, clearly there's a purpose behind this letter. He wants the church to go live out the gospel. He wants to go them to go live in such a way that God receives maximum glory, honor, and praise. He wants them to go live in such a way that people get a picture of Christ's love for the church. But before he dives into this walking it out, because that's the word that we see so often. So before we even get to verse 1 of chapter 4, where he says we ought to go and, and walk out this calling to which we've been called, he gives us three chapters, the first half of this letter, he devotes to just these theological realities, this incredible doctrine of the gospel. Paul knows that in order for us to go walk out the gospel, we need to understand the gospel. We need to remind ourselves of what it is. And so he spends these first, this first half of the letter giving us this incredibly rich uh, reminder of the promises of, of a couple things. What, one, what we possess in Christ Jesus. It's like Paul begins this letter by just opening up a treasure chest to remind us as believers in the church in the area of Ephesus of all that we now possess in Christ Jesus, all the eternal riches that we have in Jesus, adoption, redemption, forgiveness, uh, and a, an eternal hope, a secure future, that we've been given a new identity, that every day we wake up like our clothes that are laid out for school, we have endless love and mercy and grace, fresh mercy. It's an incredible thing. And so he just reminds us what is now available to us in Christ Jesus, which is incredible. And not only that, he reminds us of who we are. I mean, think about the beginning of chapter two where, where he reminds us of what we once were. We once were what? Dead people. Like walking around zombies that we were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's at work in the sons of disobedience, we were living by our passions. We were once, what, dead people, and now we've been made alive. We once were strangers to the covenant. Now we're fellow heirs and citizens. We were, by nature, what, children of wrath. Now we're children of the Most High God. All because He's, what, rich in mercy. Because of His great love for which He loved us. It's incredible. We've been made alive and seated with Him, he says in chapter 2 in the heavenly places. And so he spends the first half of this letter just on doctrine. Then he moves to duty. He says because of, of the gospel, because of who we've been made to be in Christ Jesus, because we're a new thing, a new humanity, we take off the old and put on the new, our natural overflow and our natural response ought to be to go walk it out. And he starts to say that to us. He starts in chapter 4 with this reminder that now we're supposed to walk in a, a, a manner. He's urging us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called with humility and gentleness. We ought to walk, as he starts to say, as a church in unity. We ought to walk away from sin in purity. We ought to walk like God as we get to the beginning of, of chapter 5 where he says that we are to be what? Imitators of God. And how we do that? We walk with a, a God-like love. We walk in love. We walk in light because we're not in the darkness anymore. We walk in 
wisdom. Now, what I love is, is that even in that walking it out, he gets even more intensely practical. He says, let's talk about how that looks inside of all of these institutions in daily life that we exist in. You know, Martin Luther would refer to you know, chapters 5 and the beginning of chapter 6 as this Christian Hostafel, very German word for these household codes. How does this walking it out, how does this living out the gospel in a way that brings God incredible glory and displays Christ's love for the church, how does that look inside of our marriages? And how does that look for husbands? How does that look for wives? How does that look for children? What does that look like for parents? He begins to tell us. He says, just for us in general, verse 21 of chapter 5, he says that ought to look like submission. We ought to submit to one another as to what? We ought to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ as to the Lord. Husbands ought to what? Verse 25 of chapter 5. We ought to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. Wives, we ought to what? Submit and respect our husbands. We see that in verses 20. 2 through 24. As to the Lord, parents ought to, I mean, children ought to obey and honor their parents in the Lord. Parents ought not discourage or provoke, but instruct and discipline. And now, what I want to focus on very quickly, it's been a wonderfully pra practical passage of Scripture, is that we come to verses 5 through 9 of chapter 6, the very end of this kind of Christian household codes or how we live it out, and we come to a very interesting passage. Of scripture that I want to focus on. So let's read it together. Let me read it. Starting in verse 5 of chapter 6, Paul gives this command now to bond servants or, or slaves. He says this, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same thing to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. It's an interesting passage of Scripture. I think initially there would be a real tendency and a temptation and a desire for pastors, for us, to just jump right into the practical application of a verse like this. And let me just be honest with you, it's probably, it's definitely not the best course of action with any passage of Scripture. I think to be faithful to the text that you ought to spend time unpacking a little bit of explanation, looking at the context of the passage of Scripture, but very much so, I think that applies to this passage. Because I think this passage can be for a lot of people, confusing. It can be troubling if we don't handle it carefully. I think this passage of Scripture, before you ever dive into the application, it is incredibly helpful to look at the context and explanation. Why? Just to be honest with you, because of the language of this passage. We start to hear words like servant and slave and master. Paul ends this Christian household codes and these instructions here with how bond servants or slaves or a person that is bound to their master are supposed to live the gospel out and honor Christ Jesus and bring maximum glory and honor to God with how they go about this relationship. And that might be confusing because you're thinking, I don't understand what's going on here. Is, is this the same kind of slavery that we think about here in the United States that we, that we knew of here? Is Paul condoning slavery here? Are the biblical writers endorsing slavery? Was this just something that was 
Paul was talking about for for this uh, you know initial context was it something for for then a long time ago and not for now and then just on top of all that you would think yeah how do we apply this well I think to answer those questions we do need to look at a little bit of context of slavery in the Roman Empire because I do want you to understand this is talking about servitude it is talking about slavery and so while that is the same kind of fruit as the slavery we're talking about, it's not apples to apples. It would be closer to apples and pineapples. And we need to understand that before we can even apply this text of Scripture. Here's what you got to understand about the Roman Empire. I mean, there was some estimation that there were a lot of slaves in the Roman Empire, some 60 million slaves, and that in the biggest towns like Rome and Corinth and Ephesus, like this letter that's being written here, one-third, you know, some... 30% of all of those cities were made up of slaves. I mean, slave servitude, bond servant work was an overtly accepted way of Mediterranean life. And here's the thing is that this slavery was not delineated for just specific tasks because it wasn't like just the menial task and the hard work. You think of you know, a reference here by Klein Snodgrass who says they did all of the work, including even oversight work and management work of all different kinds of professions. He says some slaves were more educated than even their owners. They could own property. They could own even other slaves and were allowed to save money to buy their freedom. So there really wasn't a slave class that existed like we know of here. And, and those slaves and those servants existed in almost all the areas of social life and economic life, probably with the exception of probably the very highest levels of the social strata. Most of the slaves gained their freedom by the age of 30 years old. They did lots of white-collar work. They were clerks and cashiers. I mean, Lionel Caston's book, Everyday Life in Rome, designated this, said that they were bookkeepers of ancient Greece and Rome. They manned not only the lower levels of such work, but also the upper levels as well. well. Banks were owned by wealthy Greek and Roman families, but the officers who were in charge of those banks and those businesses mostly were servants, slaves, and freedmen. And so as Paul's writing this letter to these churches, the majority of this church here in Ephesus would have likely been bond servants or slaves, or at least ex-bond servants or slaves. Every single person that was receiving this letter uh, would have, in in this Ephesian church, would have had an incredible interest in this Christian hostafel and these commands that were given to Christian servants, masters, and slaves. And so when we think of slavery, I think, of course, we think of U.S. slavery, and that makes sense since that's our closest context But what we see here, just very quickly, is not like U.S. slavery. It was not something that was delineated along racial lines or race. It wasn't something that existed for life. Kent Hughes, in his commentary, he says this. He says, I want you to understand this. We also understand that being a slave did not indicate one social class. Slaves regularly were accorded uh, and afforded social status as the same as their owners. Regarding their outward appearance, it was usually impossible to distinguish a slave from a freed person. A slave could be a custodian, they could be a salesman, or a CEO. Many servants lived separately from their owners. Finally, selling oneself into slavery was commonly used as a means of obtaining Roman citizenship and gaining an entrance into society. Roman servitude or slavery in the first century was far more humane and civilized than that of the American African slavery practiced in this country, the United States, much later. 
And I think that's a sobering, it's a humbling, it's an interesting fact. Now let me just say this. People, it still wasn't a great thing. You know, people, as, as Snodgrass would say, they became slaves through all kinds of different avenues. People were sometimes born into slavery in the Roman Empire, sometimes because of child repudiation. Their parents sold them or abandoned them into slavery. Maybe they had become slaves because they'd been captured in war or they, they had debt. They were unable to pay their debts. Or, and a lot of time it was just pure voluntary reasons. Somebody volunteered into this life because it was going to improve the conditions of their just daily life. And so while servitude servanthood and the servitude and the slavery was not along racial lines or social status lines. It could be hard. It could be dominating. It could be harsh, even cruel, so dependent usually upon who your master was. And that made Paul's instructions here to those Christian bosses, employees, masters, those in authority positions, so much more poignant and relevant. All that to say is, just gives us a little taste of what we're dealing with here. Now, let me just answer this question. I think there's a lot of people, we do this all through the Bible, we would say, well, why wouldn't Paul give different advice? Why is it that Paul would not have given a command here or given advice to undo this kind of servitude or slavery? Why wouldn't he have given a call here to abolish slavery? I think there's a couple initial answers that we would have to that. I think, again, when you start to dive into the context, not just of the society, not just of their culture, but also of who is receiving this letter and who's writing it. I think it makes a lot more sense. Number one, the goal of this letter was not about changing the structures of society. I mean, at the time, we have good evidence that there were a lot of really positive and good humanitarian reforms that were being implemented with regard to Roman servitude and slavery. Things were getting better at this time. Also, I think Paul wouldn't have addressed this not only just because that wasn't the purpose of his letter, but because... Generally, the institution of, of this bondservant work in slavery wasn't considered by the slaves, the servants, or the masters as something that was inherently evil, we have evidence to say. These slaves, these people that were reading this, were not readily or, or easily you know, arguing against this. They, they weren't asking so much readily to be released from this servitude. It's not what they were thinking in their daily lives. I think they probably would have felt the opposite. Truth is, if, if Paul would have said, here's what we need to do. I need you to go in and quit. Masters, and I think I need you to let go of your, your servants. It, honestly, I think you would have had more so of a panic. You would have had people who were thinking, man, I, we're going to be reduced to poverty. And here's what it's saying on top of it. The, the idea that Paul didn't address what we know to be slavery is not even true. I mean, I think just look at the letter that he wrote to the church at, at Ephesus. You look at these first three chapters and you see that this, this gospel that Paul is describing, this new humanity that he's describing in Christ Jesus, this radical family that we have together, this brotherhood now that we have in the gospel, this equality that we have before God that's explicit in the gospel would have been death to slavery as we know it. I mean, think about what he said to the church at Galatians, Galatians 3, 27 through 28, very familiar passage of scripture. Here's what he says we are now because of the gospel. He says, for as many of you were baptized into Christ and have put on Christ, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. I think about this, uh, the book of Philemon, this one chapter, verses 15 and 16, as he's sending Onesimus back to, a bondservant, back to Philemon. He gives some advice to Philemon the master. I mean, read these verses. 15 says, for this perhaps is why he, Onesimus, parted from you for a, for a while, 
that you might have him back forever. And he says this to Philemon, the master, that you would have him back no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant. As of what now? A beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? I mean, all through Scripture, I was, I was reading Tony Marita, a pastor in North Carolina. He says, all through Scripture, the Bible addresses this. He says, first, just look at what the Bible says that we are to one another. He doesn't call us to, he, he says that we're called to love our neighbor, not own our neighbors. I mean, think about that, Luke 10, 27. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Taking people against their will in a dominant fashion is sinful. It's opposed to this greatest commandment that we just read. You look at this and it says that we are supposed to what? The Bible says we should treat each other the way that we want to be treated. I mean, this is just the golden rule that we see in Scripture that we learned when we were in kindergarten. Matthew 7, 12 says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Let me tell you what this is going to now cancel out. It's going to cancel out. Uh, you, know, you know what I don't want to have happen to me? I don't want to be ripped from my home and abused by someone else. I don't want to be transported and taken somewhere against my will and dominated. Slavery is, that, as we know it in this country, is opposite to what we read here in Matthew 7 to 12. Verse 12. One of the pictures of the gospel that we see overtly through Scripture in Old Testament and the New is the picture of freedom. You know, Jesus came to what? Set us free spiritually. To free us from our slavery and our bondage to sin. You see what a prisoner is not something that we view positively. I mean, look at Luke 4.18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor, Jesus said. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. When Jesus says he, he shows up in this Nazareth, he uttered those words as he showed up in this Nazareth synagogue on the Sabbath, opens up to Isaiah and says, this is who I am. He quotes that scripture. Paul's teaching, other New Testament teachings, they undermine slavery, if anything. They destroy it from within. And I think sometimes if we don't know scripture, I think sometimes it's maybe harder to see that, but... But here's what we know. They're not endorsing slavery. I think sometimes they describe, they explain what's happening in that day. And there's a lot more we could say, but I wanted to give you a little taste of that context before we dive into the application. So now we might ask that question, okay, how do we apply that context of what they were living in to our situation today? And what I would say is this probably does best fit in the relationship of being an employee and an employer in, in daily life as we work. And here's what I would say as we begin to set the table for how we, how we set the table for qualifying. How do we glorify God in the midst of this context of work? How do we display Christ-like love and the, the love that Christ has in relationship to the, to the church and glorify God to the maximum in our work environment? I, I would just remind you of a couple qualifiers that we see on all these other commands in this hostel as well. Verse 21 of chapter 5, we're supposed to what? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, verse 22, we're supposed to submit to our own husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, verse 25, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 1 of chapter 6, husband, you know, children, obey your parents, what? In the Lord. We see the same thing here. Look at verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. 
with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Look at verse 6, as bondservants, as slaves of Christ. Verse 7, as to the Lord. Verse 8, receive this back from the Lord. Let me tell you what all of this these house codes and all of these commands for husbands, wives, children, parents, and even employees and workers is, is that we ought to live every single area of our life for Jesus Christ to the Lord in a Christ-like fashion. While slaves, yes, were to obey their masters, servants were to have reverence for their masters, here's what he's ultimately saying as wives are supposed to submit to their husbands, as we are submitting to one another, as we're loving one another, the ultimate person that we're doing that for and the ultimate master that we're doing that for is Jesus. He is the greatest concern of our lives. As a friend, as a husband, as a wife, father, mother, child, parent, we are to be preoccupied by obeying a higher master and pleasing him. This is God our Father. I I might have a, a business card or a job title that says I work for some business or it has a company name on it, but Paul says this in this passage of Scripture, that you really are working for God. You are an employee of God for Christ Jesus. And that makes all the difference. Husbands, you're doing more than just being in a relationship with your wife. You're more than just somebody who's married to your wife. Number one, God reminds you that heavens are made, that marriages are made in heaven and that you are one in Christ Jesus, but you are loving your wife with a higher calling in mind, that you want to honor and love your spouse as to the Lord, that you are worshiping God and honoring Him as you do that. Children, obey their parents because it pleases the Lord, like Colossians 3.23 says. Worshiping God is, uh, obeying our parents is a way that we obey God and worship Him. The same thing's true here in this passage of Scripture. The goal of our entire lives, the goal of all of creation, is to bring maximum honor and glory to our God the Father, to display His infinite beauty and worth and value. I mean, this is what Paul said to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, let me tell you what falls into that whatever you do. Everything. The whatever is comprehensive. And what do we do it all to? That verse says, do it all to the glory of God. Think about it, if Paul could write these incredibly self-sacrificing, humble, submissive, agape-loving, countercultural, radical words about slaves and these servants and about their livelihood and marriages, then they apply and he could be writing them about our lives and our work and our jobs today. And so here's what we learn about this passage. Here's what we learn. We are to, number one, very simple things. I'm going to keep it simple. We are to work as if Christ were our boss. I love this. Marshall Seagal words it like this. A writer, he says, Work as if Christ were your superior, with holy fear and trembling and with sincerity. Why? Because bosses can cheat us, they can mistreat us, even fire us, but Christ can do far worse and far better. He not only sees our every move at work, but he knows our every thought. Nothing ever gets by him. Think about this. If your boss monitored you all day, every day, Would you work differently, harder, better, more conscientiously, sincerely? Your almighty Savior and judge sits even closer than that. 
when we realize that we are working for the Lord and we realize that the number one calling of our life is to be a faithful follower and disciple of Christ Jesus, that will have an effect on every single other area of our lives. I heard a story of one time of a father who, who was having his first child and as the moment that his child was being delivered, they placed this baby in his arms and he was overcome with anxiety. He was thinking, you know what? My life was packed to the gills full before. He started thinking about his work and his job responsibilities at home and in life. And he's thinking, you know, I, I didn't have any time before. I was barely getting by in those. And now, now I have to add this responsibility. And he was getting advice from people who were saying, well, you got to figure out which one of those balls that you're juggling you got to let drop. I'm not sure that's the best advice. Let me tell you what, I, I can't be a faithful disciple of the Lord and not be a faithful follower since he's called me to that role as well. I can't be a, a faithful disciple of the Lord and, be, and, and not be a faithful husband or father, mother, wife. So what do we do at work? We work as if Christ were our boss. And what would that look like? We see this scripture. Look at this. In verse 5, it says, Bond servants, obey your, mather, your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. That means, number one, we work, what, respectfully. Let me tell you what this means. It doesn't mean that he's suggesting that we ought to be terrified or shaken in our boots of our bosses. That if we mess up in one little, you know, weird way or that it's, it's all over for us, no, it's suggesting that we ought to have a reverence and a respect for the position that's over us in authority. It's the same kind of word that we see in verse 33 of chapter 5 for wives and their husbands. Not, they ought to be walking around the house shaking in their boots of their husbands. No, but they have a respect for that authority that God has placed upon that position. Christian servants here are being instructed on how they ought to interact knowing that likely the authority that's over them is, may not even be a follower of Christ. How do we work respectfully? It means that I, the way that I deal with the world around me and the way that I deal with my co-workers and I deal with those authorities over me at work ought to give a representation of who Christ Jesus is. It might be in a situation where it would be easily to breed contempt or resentment or not like the way your boss is doing things or to somehow think that you're better than him or you're more honest. Scripture saying that we, we ought to work hard and we ought to work reverently. We ought to be Christ-like at work. I think of 1 Timothy 6, 1 that says, Let all who are under the yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that, why? Why should we do this? So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. The way that you go about work is a witness. We don't want to criminalize or destroy our witness. We work respectfully. How else will we work as if our boss was Christ Jesus? We work with a sincere heart, this passage of Scripture says. Where verse 2 says, Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart. We ought to work with a sincere motivation of our heart. That, that word sincere here means a singleness of heart. We ought to have a single-mindedness of our heart, a sincerity for what? I mean, I guess we could have a sincerity for all kinds of things. What's the motivation that we're, we're so single-minded about it? It could be money. It could be power. It could be promotion. It could be position. It could be fame. Let me just tell you what should be the sincere motivation of our hearts with regard to work. We've already said it. It should be different than the rest of the world. Our motive for work in all of our life ought not be the accumulation of things. I mean, Paul made that clear. Compared to the all-surpassing power of knowing Christ, we consider all things what garbage and rubbish. We sacrifice all those things. Our treasure is not trinkets here. Our treasure is Christ Jesus, and this is why we do everything we do in our life. It is for Jesus. The reason why we ought to work hard 
and work respectfully and work excellently is ultimately not because we're going to get a promotion or we're going to be become famous or work up the corporate ladder. No, it ought to ultimately be single-mindedly for Jesus. Think about Colossians 3.23, verses 24 as well. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. We should be, Christians ought to be the best employees. Not for just promotions or raises, but because we represent Christ. Because we are people of integrity. Because we are, we are people that want to honor and give glory to our Father in heaven. We ought to work respectfully. We ought to work with a sincere heart. We ought to work with good attitudes. Look at that. Verse 7 says, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Why? Well, probably because this is who we've been made to be. I mean, Galatians 5 says that because we've been filled with the Spirit, just like verse 18 of chapter 5 says in Ephesians, because we've been filled with the Spirit, there ought to be fruit of the Spirit. I mean, things that ought to be being born in our life are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I mean, there ought to be a natural overflow of the Spirit in our life that, that lets us have a good, cheerful attitude. But also, he tells us why here in verse 8. Because Whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Let me tell you what, with God, no act goes unnoticed. I mean, there is going to be a day, believers, where we will appear before the judgment seat of Christ and be held accountable or rewarded based upon what we're doing right now, how obedient and faithful we are now. I mean, we see that in Matthew, Romans, 2 Corinthians. Just think about that for a second. How would that being the motivation of our heart and having that on our minds right now, knowing that that's coming, that the Lord's watch, how would that change the way that you go about your marriage? How would that go about changing the way you parent and certainly the way that you work? Now, let me end with this. The bosses and those authorities and employers, let me tell you what, you're not off the hook yet. <laughs> we do see here in verse 9 some instruction that I think we can apply to our lives there. Look at this. He says this in verse 9. Paul says, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. There's some things we learn there too. There ought to be a spirit of mutuality even as masters. And that's what we see there. It's the golden rule at work in verse 9. Masters do the same to them. The same things that apply to these workers that we saw above apply to us as well. We're not off the hook. You better treat workers as you want to be treated with respect and patience, graciousness. Treat them, what, in a Christ-like manner. We ought to do this without harshness. That means we ought not be hostile, threatening, angry, bullying. We ought not be putting dominance pressure on them. Let me tell you what, that would have been radical in the first century culture. It's radical now. We ought to be different than the rest of humanity. We ought to do this without playing favorites because God is opposed to impartiality. Let me tell you, bottom line, we learn from this just to be super practical. Maybe you wake up today or or tomorrow, and you go to work, and you realize that the way we're called to live in this life, in all of these institutions God's created, and in our workplaces, in our homes, is just game-changingly different and radical. Who we've been created to be in Christ Jesus is different. People ought to be able to see Christ in us. So I heard a pastor say, here's the encouragement for us as we sign off for today. We ought to work like Christ and work for Christ. And we ought to lead like Christ and lead for Christ. Think about your life today. Is there any area that you can pray about and say, God, help me. Help me be more like you, Jesus. Less of me, more of you. Friends, I'm praying for you today. I want you to go walk it out. 
I'm praying that I will walk it out. I pray that as we leave this time, that, that God will grow us, convict us, guide us to be more like Jesus, and that's what people see. Hope that you have an awesome day. Come back. We're going to dig into the Word some more again. See you soon. Bye.